This week, our podcast is going live a few hours later than usual because we have some breaking news, which we're reporting from the University of Florida. Yep, we're joined by Dr. Annalisa Paul to talk all about this historic feat. For the first time in history, plants have been grown in lunar soil. Please keep in contact with us at Space and Things One on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook or via the contact form on our website. And of course, we still don't have a marketing budget. So if you have enjoyed this podcast, please do hit the share button. But right now, enjoy episode 89 of the Space and Things Podcast. Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 89 of our podcast. Now, Emily, I know we've got loads to catch up on after last week, but this breaking news story needs to take precedent, if you ask me. So we'll do that later in the podcast, if that's all right with you. Absolutely. Uh, we received an email on Monday about a news story which was embargoed till Thursday, and we thought it was too good that we decided to delay the release of our podcast for a few hours so we can talk about it. Not only are we just going to talk about it, but we also managed to secure one of the researchers who's been directly working on this project. Yeah, that's right. Now, this may not seem like a big deal to some people. But it is, right? And I'm also aware that there's another massive story coming out uh, on the same day as this that's also been embargoed to do with Event Horizons. But I think this is a huge story and it potentially will get overlooked. They have grown plants in lunar regolith, lunar soil, which is absolutely nuts. Now, you may have assumed that this is something that could happen and maybe has already happened, but it hasn't. It's never been done before. So to tell us all about it, how they did it, why they did it and what it all means, we are joined by Dr. Annalisa Paul, Director of the University of Florida's Interdisciplinary Center for Biotechnology Research. That's a mouthful. Right, let's get on with it. Airman from the planet Earth, first set foot upon the moon, July 1969, First of all, I just want to say welcome to our show and Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're really honored to have you join us on, on such a short notice to discuss these incredible findings. So let's really just start with the basics. What exactly have you all done here? <laughs> so my colleague Rob Furl and I are uh, we're, we're space biologists. We are plant molecular biologists. We've been sending plants to space for decades now. And all that kind of work is primarily because we're interested in ourselves as explorers, as humans, as explorers. So the idea is that when we leave Earth's orbit, we'll be taking plants with us, whether that be in orbital environments like the space station or in planetary environments like the moon or Mars. So for us, the next step was to ask, can we use the resources on another planetary surface, like the regolith of the moon, to actually grow plants in the controlled habitats that would be attending the humans? It's amazing that this hasn't been done before. But how does someone go about obtaining lunar regolith in order to perform an experiment with? Well, it is not easy to get regolith from the moon. You have to go through a... Uh, a proposal process to the Lunar Allocation Analysis Review Board, the AARB, which also used to be called CAPTEM, that 
are the curators of all of the precious materials that came back from the Apollo era. You write a proposal and you design what you'd like to do with these precious materials. And well, to make a long story short, it took us three tries before we were able to write a proposal that resonated well with the review board. Uh, we had, uh, in addition to Rob Furl and myself, there's another person on the proposal, Steve Alardo, who was a, ge a geologist in the, also at the University of Florida. And together, we put together the idea that to understand how plants could grow for, for instance, in the new Artemis program and the future exploration that is now coming more to the forefront, we'd have to be able to do it ourselves first here on the ground in very controlled situations. And that's, that's what we did. We got 12 grams of material. We interestingly only asked for four grams. Oh, wow. We asked for four grams of the uh, sort of rather scruffy and characterized stuff that uh, Harrison Schmidt dug out of the bumper of the uh, rover because we figured, well, you know, no self-respecting geologist would want that stuff anyway, so we might as well throw <laughs> plants out. Um, but the review board thought, well, they have a pretty good idea here. So in addition to giving us those four grams of Apollo 17 material, they gave us four grams of Apollo 11 material and four grams of Apollo 12 material, both of which were beautiful, pristine samples that had unique characteristics of their own compared to the Apollo 17. And so that allowed us to design the kind of experiment that can truly ask can plants grow in lunar regolith, and what can it tell us about the different kinds of materials at different sites on the moon? Um, allow me to cut in a little bit. Can you explain the, the process of growing the plants? The process of growing the plants is complicated because you're working with a gram of material per plant. That's a quarter of a teaspoon or so. so it's a <laughs> tiny, tiny amount. What we did is we designed small growth plates. We adapted these plastic trays, essentially think of them as sort of like a micro ice cube tray kind of looking thing <laughs> that uh, we drilled holes in the bottoms of these little wells. They're about 12 millimeters across and 17 millimeters deep. We plugged the holes with small bits of spun wool kind of stuff made out of rocks or rock wool, and then put a small filter on top. And then the 900 milligrams, almost a gram of the lunar regolith goes on top of that. We had four plates that were replicated the same, where they had four wells of the control volume, the JSC-1 uh, terrestrial materials, and then one each of the lunar regolith in each tray. So you had the four controls, and then Apollo 11, Apollo 12, and Apollo 17 represented on each plate. And then we had four of those plates. Uh, once they got loaded up with their attendant materials. We carefully soaked them with a very dilute nutrient solution to wet all the materials, planted Arabidopsis seeds on the surface, took them out to the security growth chamber and let them do their magic. Well, let's talk about that magic then. So when you set this experiment up, did you think that the plants would grow? Uh, did it happen as you thought it would? And have there been any surprises? <laughs> Yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> the, um, what we did, we expected. We expected that plants would probably grow, but they probably wouldn't grow well. We expected that things would be difficult for them, and we weren't confident that we would get enough biological material to do the types of molecular analyses that we really wanted to do. We wanted to look at the patterns of gene expression. 
So two days after we, we brought our plates down into the growth chamber and, and turned on the lights and carefully walked away, we went back in and we took a look at all those plates and we were astonished to find every single seed had germinated. Wow. There was a glorious spread of germinating seedlings in every single place we, we planted them, whether it be in the lunar regolith itself or in the, the JSC1 controls, everything germinated. And it was one of those things that it was shocking thing to the heart almost to watch that. And Rob Furl and I just stood there and just watched for a while. <laughs> wow. They all grew. Now, they didn't stay in that same kind of state for, for very long. After about a week, and we photographed them every single day, they started to, to diminish a little bit, the ones that were growing in the regular. We did expect that because that first week, they're mostly surviving off of their stored materials in their seeds. So once they're sort of on their own, then they have to rely on what they can draw from their environment. And that's where the changes started to occur. So what's the next step then? Is it about trying to manage that regolith and help it in order to give the plants more of a chance? Or were you not worried about that at this stage? Uh, was your focus elsewhere? Part of it would be having how to maintain that sort of, sort of that environment. So for us, um, after this first week, and we let them to grow for about 20 more days, and we, like I said, we uh, characterize them ph photographically so we know pictures of how they grew and their, their rates of growth and things. But the most important part for us was after they had grown for 20 days, we harvested them, and then they were ground up in certain buffers, and then their, their RNA was extracted. And by doing that, then we can sequence the RNA and we can compare the RNA from the samples that grew in the controls versus the samples that grew in the regolith. And we can ask, what are the patterns of genes that are being expressed? Wow. Whether you're growing in a regolith versus whether you're growing in a semi-normal terrestrial kind of environment. And that gives you insight. That's your readout as to what metabolic tools plants are pulling out of themselves to adjust to this new and novel environment outside their evolutionary experience. And that insight is what allows to take the next steps of saying, all right, we know that when plants grow in regolith, they think they're receiving oxidative stress. They think that they are under a salt stress and, and, and metal stress. We know that those things aren't actually in the regolith. So how do we take those signals that the plants are giving us and then ameliorate those environments to help them not spool up and spend energy trying to adjust, perhaps even inappropriately, and have them instead put that energy into making food for us. I have a follow-up question that's a little ways out from the last question that I asked, but I've, I've studied a little bit about the Apollo program, and one big criticism of it, made even by scientists at the time, was it doesn't focus as much on science. It focuses more on boot prints on the moon you know, science was kind of regarded as a joke, and they only flew one scientist, of course, Dr. Harrison Schmidt, on Apollo 17. Even though this discovery has happened over 50 years later, that shows that, you know, lunar science has not been a joke, you know? Do you have anything to say about that, maybe, like a statement or what you think about the issue? Well, there's, there's decades and decades of beautiful lunar science that has been conducted, irrespective of 
why the first lunar missions were launched and, and what was important to those initial lunar missions is really clear that the samples that were brought back have been studied with exquisite fidelity. And the kind of science that has come from that has, has been fantastic. A lot of it is, of course, geology, geochemistry, x-ray crystallography, all the kinds of things that define what does the regolith look like? What can it tell us about the origins of our solar system? What can it tell us about the, the billions of years that it's been exposed to cosmic radiation and the cosmic wind? To now have the opportunity to take that heritage and metaphorically hold it in our hands and introduce biology to that, to, to us, is, is a profound statement of where we see ourselves as explorers in the universe. This is what allows us to be explorers is plants. When we leave Earth's orbit, we absolutely will take plants with us. And this heritage of taking your plants in an exploration environment is something we've always done as humans for, for millennia, whether you're Polynesians carrying across the Pacific Ocean or, or even the, uh, across a continent. We, we take our biology with us when we go places. And this is what enables us to go. I love that answer. Great answer. I'm sure when this is announced and when this is, you know, obviously unembargoed and when it's distributed, you know, across the media channels and stuff like that, I'm foreseeing this and I hope I'm right. This is going to be a big BFD. <laughs> we called it in the military. You can spell that out. Um, you betcha. <laughs> I, I won't say it. I'm sure, though, there are going to be the people out there who are like, well, what about the ethics of bringing plants to the moon? What about the ethics of bringing plants and of course, you know, the idea of plants in space isn't really a new thing. They've grown them on the ISS. And of course, we've seen the movie, even though it's a fictional film, you know, The Martian, where he grows potatoes to sustain his life. What do you have to, uh, you know, say to people who might be concerned, like, well, we shouldn't have plants or anything like that on the moon. We should keep the moon pristine, even though, you know, as we explore, we're going to have to take our food with us. What do you have to say? Well, that is a big, long, complex <laughs> concept for sure. So if we, we break it down a little bit, first of all, because the moon is a sterile environment, it's not as if we can cast our seeds out upon the surface of the moon and have them grow. So the plants would be growing inside an enclosed habitat, inside a carefully regulated environment. It would be far less exposure to the surface of the moon than the astronauts just walking out of the habitat onto the surface. And of course, in some respects, well, we're too late because <laughs> the astronauts have already done that and have left their footprints on the surface, which of course carries a small bit of terrestrial biology with them. So the, the kind of experiments that we would do initially on the moon, the kind of uh, habitat you might have on the moon that actually uses plants in a more meaningful volume and, and, and array would still not have anywhere near the impact than we've already had on the moon. So I don't think we have much to worry about on that front. But uh, as you say, how do we get around that? We do have to respect the kind of environments we, we reach. Uh, Rob Furl and I have also done work in Antarctica where we've worked on uh, greenhouses that mimic what you might find on the moon or Mars. And I remember feeling that when you're out on the Antarctic ice shelf and you're looking at this pristine and fabulous environment, also which 
can kill you if you go outside unprotected. It evokes not only just the sense of sort of wonder and respect, but it's also this sense of awe that we don't belong here and we have to take care of it and be good stewards of those in environments to protect them as well. And so do we have to protect the moon? Yeah, absolutely. We absolutely do. And it'll be even more significant when we go to Mars because Mars is an environment that it could harbor life and could be contaminated by our life. And so if we learn how to do it right here in Antarctica, if we learn how to do it right on the moon, then perhaps we can do it right on Mars and we'll be even better stewards of our solar system. <laughs> well, my next question was going to be, what do you think the long-term implications of this work would be? But I feel like you've just answered that. So what's next for your team? Where do we go now we've got this information? And forgive me, I'm about to spill out loads of things which have been going around my head of things you might want to do next. So do you now apply for more regolith? Is that what happens now? Do you try and send some to the International Space Station to do zero gravity experiments on plants growing in regolith? Are there other situations you want to see in a lab to, to help understand how this all works better? Or are we trying to reuse the current regolith you've used and see if the second generation of plant within that regolith performs differently? What comes next? That's a lot of questions in, in, in one breath. Um, <laughs> so first of all, let's see. Rob and I have sent a lot of plants to the space station already. I mean, we've done a lot of that work. We've, we've, we've had, I think, 11 different wow. microgravity experiments. So we know pretty well how plants behave in a microgravity environment. It's really quite different than how they respond to lunar regolith, even though you hit it in that both environments are novel environments. Both things require plants to adjust to things outside their evolutionary experience. Could you combine the two? Oh, astronauts would hate that because <laughs> lunar regolith is powdery, messy, sharp, reactive. There's no way we would ever be allowed to fly free lunar regolith in a zero-g environment <laughs> with humans. Um, now, having said that, can you choose other environments which would to challenge lunar regolith and, and plant growth? And the answer to that is absolutely. So think about when you're growing plants on a habitat, on the moon or Mars, atmosphere is expensive. It's, it's expensive both in the weight that it takes to carry it there and also to maintain that habitat. If you can reduce the atmospheric pressure inside your habitat, you save resources. Plants do very well in low atmospheric pressures. In fact, they survive better in low atmospheric pressures than humans do. And, and Rob and I have also done a lot of studies in, in that kind of concept. And so an experiment that would be lovely to do is to run something similar like we did, but run it inside a chamber that mimicked what a real greenhouse on the moon might look like. Wow. Also asking about if you had more materials. Oh, very yes. In, in that, <laughs> then we could do, we could introduce variables. We could say, all right, so there in uh, some of the regulus evoke uh, a nutrient stress response. What are the genes that are being expressed that are saying that we need more potassium, we need more phosphorus? What if we alter the nutrient delivery system and, and composition? Can we make it easier for plants so they don't have to turn on as many genes? Very, a lot of variables there. And the last big one you mentioned is we know now what the regolith does to the plants to some degree. What do the plants do to the regolith? And 
does that then condition the regolith and can we condition it over time simply by growing biology in it? Would it be best to have first some kind of cover crop that grows in your regolith to condition it before you want to grow broccoli on, <laughs> on the moon? Um, so, so many things like that, so much more to do. Absolutely. And I hope we can be a part of all that. <laughs> yeah, me too, because what you've done so far is absolutely incredible. So how can people find out more about what you guys are up to? Is there a place on the internet where people can get updates on the research you're doing? Yeah. So our laboratory is called the UF Space Plants uh, Laboratory. And we have a, we have a website and, and our, our, uh, our lab manager um, has a, a blog and, and different kinds of things that we try to keep up with. Rob and I are really pretty terrible with social media, but <laughs> our younger folks in our laboratory help, you know, keep <laughs> keep us current, at least to some degree, but probably our website. Well, that will be in our show notes. Don't worry about that. And on a similar kind of trail of thought, how do products like this get funded? And if someone is listening and thinking, this is amazing, I want to be involved but I'm not a scientist, but I would love to throw some money at a project like this to be part of it. Is that something that people can do? Well, so, so I am a, you know, simple country molecular geneticist. I don't know <laughs> a lot about some of the crazy ways things do get funded, but I can tell you the way typically things like this get funded. And typically is that uh, scientists like myself and Rob and Steve will write grant proposals to NASA. And we'll say, we have this great idea. Here's all the preliminary data that shows you what a great idea this is. And then it goes out for peer review. Uh, it's reviewed for two things. It's reviewed to how credible is the science and how tenable is the project. Meaning if you want to do a microgravity experiment, you know, you're not going to want to send up powdery stuff, right? <laughs> you're yeah. going to do it, do it responsibly. Um, and then if NASA and the peer review process think it's a good idea, you get funded. You get funded to do that. Um, there are also other ways that we at the university do fund some work, and that is that we also have um, sort of university monies and uh, small pots of money that if we want to do things that we just want to try out that sometimes don't have a direct grant funding, we can, we can do that well. For this particular project, um, some of our direct funding was from the University of Florida uh, Office of Research. And some of our funding was indirectly from the uh, Biological and Physical Sciences Division of NASA that, that helped us sort of set the stage for the experiments that then eventually led to, to these studies being, being done. But sure, it does, like many things, it does indeed take, take money to do. Well, thank you very much for joining us and telling us all about this incredible work as soon as we got the email telling us about this i messaged emily straight away saying we've got to do this we've got to do this i'm really excited about this and i hope our listeners are as well but thank you for coming on and we'd love to have you back on another time if you're willing to tell us about what your next discovery is uh because this work just seems so important and thank you very much for, for telling us all about it it would be our honor and pleasure for sure <laughs> thank, thank you. you so much thank you Well, Emily, I think that was the best interview we've ever had on this podcast. I don't know. I say that a lot, but it definitely feels like it right now. Yeah, me too. I'm very much speechless. 
I honestly think when this news drops, when it's unembargoed, people are going to flip out. Dave, just take it. I can't put my emotions <laughs> into words right now. Yeah, I know what you mean. I sent Emily the image of these plants just before we did that interview, and I watched her reaction, and it, it's mind-blowing. This image will be the thumbnail of this episode, but also I'm sure you'll find it on the internet or on our social media as well. It's just mind-blowing. That word's going to keep coming up today, I'm sure of it. But this is mind-blowing. And this is the start of potentially so much cool stuff that can happen. If you can do this, there is nothing stopping you going to the moon and being there for a long time and growing lots of different plants and food that we need without having to transport it all there. And if you can do it on the moon, hopefully you can do it in other places as well. The implications of this are huge, and this is the first step. We've had this material for 52 years, and finally it's been proven that it can happen. It's just amazing. I've been thinking about this show a lot today. This reminds me of uh, For All Mankind when Molly Cobb finds water on the moon. Yes. You know, what a big deal that was. And this to me is like on the same level. The Soviet Union, when they had the Salyut stations, I think they did grow some plants on that space station. And we've grown plants on the ISS, the United States has, and I think the Russians have too. And that's amazing. And I'm not taking credit from any of those experiments at all because we need to be doing things like that. You know, as we go out further into space and longer into space, we need to find out, okay, how can we generate our own food up here? Because there's going to come a time where we have to live up here permanently. But, um... There's going to come a time where we're going to have to terraform. Some people are going to roll their eyes like Emily has read way too much Gerard K. O'Neill. But there's <laughs> going to come a time where we're, we're going to have to terraform other places or learn how to grow plants in other places, such as the moon or maybe such as another, you know, Mars or, you know, another world or something like that. It might not be right now, but it's going to happen. You know, I've always wondered, well, the moon, everybody says it's like, you know, it's dead. It's inert. We can't do anything with it. I think this discovery is going to go far beyond my lifetime and it's going to impact people far beyond, you know, the University of Florida and far beyond us. Yep. When I saw the photos, my brain just exploded because I'm like, wait, that's that's lunar soil. That's not, you know, that that doesn't look like the stuff, you know, outside on my, you know, my lawn or something like that. That looks it looks like regolith. So I was just, yeah, just speechless. Yeah. So I'm trying to piece together why I think this is such a big story. And it, it boils down to this. In 20 years' time, in 30 years' time, whatever it is, when we have a permanent station on the moon or on Mars perhaps, maybe not in 20, 30 years, but who knows, when we have that and the people on those sites are having to grow plants and food, it all comes back to this experiment. This is the first time it was done. And that's why this is so big. That's why this is such a big deal. We are living through the moment of a first thing that's happened, which the human race needs to happen in order for our survival way in the future. That's this moment right now. And credit has got to be given to NASA for holding back enough samples of the Apollo program's hoard of regolith and rocks that science can continue to happen 50 years after those samples were collected, that there is enough and they've held it back knowing that in years to come, we're going to be at a point where we're going to need to do other things. And they've rationed out all these samples. I'm sure that at the time they thought they were going to have more samples by now, but alas, we haven't been back. 
But we've already had a plethora of incredible science come out of these samples, mostly to do with the origin of the moon and the solar system and so on and so forth. But now we're looking forward as well to how do we take our species on? How do we develop our ability to travel and go out to these places in future? This is huge. Exactly. And I, I wish I could show people who, you know, said 50 years ago, you know, the Apollo program, is, as far as science is concerned, is a joke. Yeah. I mean, it, does this experiment not prove that? we're still able to come up with new experiments with the same samples. Exactly. And it, it may have taken a few decades to unfold, but sometimes, you know, uh, to quote the Paul Masson ads from back of the day, if you're of a certain age, you may remember these, you know, we'll serve no wine until it's time. Sometimes it takes a very long time for a story to completely unfold. And I think that this is a case of, okay, we still have these, you know, samples of lunar regolith and they're still revealing, you know, what, you know, what they're capable of doing. Absolutely. So, as always, you can watch the full unedited version of that interview on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash space and things. A brief apology. I didn't ask our patrons this week for any questions for our guest. Of course, this story was embargoed. So, I felt like I'd be crossing a line somewhere in some ethical line if I let people know. But normally I do. Normally I ask questions. So if you're someone who'd like to submit questions to our guests in future, please do sign up to our Patreon page. Anyway, we also encourage anyone to let us know your thoughts and reactions to this news uh, on our social media pages. So please do get involved. And we've got so much to get on with, but my mind is blown. So we may struggle getting through this podcast, but we'll do our best. And so on to this week's news. Since we last recorded a new segment, which was two weeks ago, there have been nine launches, three in Florida, four in China, one in Russia and one in New Zealand. As always, there will be links to the information about these launches and their payloads in our show notes and videos if they exist. Just head to spaceandthingspodcast.com to find those or click on the link in your podcast provider. There's also links to all the stories we're about to mention. Of course, the first of those launches took place on Wednesday, April 27th, and Dave did drop this into our episode a couple of weeks ago, but we didn't talk about it properly. The Crew-4 mission on a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket launched from Kennedy Space Center during the early hours of that morning, carrying NASA astronauts Jell Lindgren, Bob Hines, and Jessica Watkins, along with ESA astronaut Samantha Christopher Reddy making her second flight to the ISS. Uh, they have since rendezvous docked and boarded the International Space Station. And as a result, Jessica Watkins has become the first black woman to be a crew member of the ISS. It's about time. Absolutely. There's actually another part of her story, which I think is quite interesting. And that's the fact that she's a geologist and she's become friends with someone uh, that we've already mentioned a couple of times in today's episode, Dr. Harrison Smith, who of course was on Apollo 17. And for the Apollo 11 50th anniversary, the two of them got to open up some samples 
from the Apollo program and have a look at them, which is pretty cool. And as a result, he was invited to watch the launch as her private guest, which I think is amazing. It's a lovely connection between the past and the future. That is awesome. Especially seen as Jessica Watkins is probably very likely to be one of the Artemis astronauts to do one of the first landings. I'd be really surprised if she's not. So it's a really lovely, cool story that the two of them are connecting. And so it's all changed on the ISS. The Crew 4 team have arrived, which meant the Crew 3 team of Roger Chari, Thomas Marshburn, Kayla Barron and Matthias Mura could depart and they safely splashed down on Friday the 6th of May. Before they left, Marshburn handed command of the ISS over to cosmonaut Oleg Artemyev. Marshburn had this to say during the handover ceremony. I think the lasting legacy of the space station is very likely to be international cooperation and a place of peace. So while we're talking about Artemyev, he was also busy on April 28th with his fellow cosmonaut, Denis Medvedev. The pair performed a spacewalk that lasted 7 hours and 42 minutes, which culminated in the first use of the brand new European robotic arm, which will now be able to service the station. The spacewalk was the 250th spacewalk in the history of the ISS. That's quite mind-blowing. There's that word again. That's a ton. Yeah, that it's not you don't really think about it until you hear the whole number. And then you're like, dang, that's a lot. That is a ton. Meanwhile, on Mars, one of the best stories of the last two weeks was the release of some photos taken by the Ingenuity helicopter on its 26th flight on April 19th, which happened to be the one year anniversary of its first flight. Uh, the photos are of the parachute and back shell, which helped the Perseverance rover which was carrying Ingenuity at the time land on the Red Planet. Uh, that was one of the best things that happened in 2021. And to see this piece of, of the um, spacecraft, or I should say that the team, the Perseverance team lying on the surface is both fascinating and, and oddly emotional. Since this flight, there have been some communication problems with the helicopter, but they have now been restored. Uh, it appears that the helicopter entered a low power state because of some dust, which meant Ingenuity couldn't communicate with Perseverance, which then sends the status back to Earth. So it uses Perseverance kind of as a, as a go-between. But anyway, everything looks great now. Excellent. Anyway, back on Earth, we've had some announcements. NASA have announced that they will attempt another wet dress rehearsal of the Artemis One rocket in mid-June, which, assuming it's successful could mean that we see the launch of that rocket sometime in August. Meanwhile, the US Federal Aviation Authority have once again delayed the environmental review, which is stopping SpaceX from their first orbital launch attempt of the Starship rocket from their base in Texas. The report will hopefully come out on May 31st, but I feel like I've given you a date for this report coming out so many times in the last year, so I would take that with a pinch of salt. Yeah. At a Kennedy Space Center, Boeing's Starliner capsule has linked back up with the United Launch Alliance Atlas V rocket, which will hopefully launch on May 19th. This is a critical uncrewed test mission to the ISS, which, assuming success, will hopefully clear Starliner to carry NASA astronauts to and from the station. Uh, you may remember that they attempted this launch last year, but, was, uh, but some stuck valves uh, stop that from happening, and it's taken quite a while to get everything in good shape. But let's hope this uh, this time is the charm. And lots of people seem to be getting excited about the latest crop of photos from the James Webb Space Telescope. See what I did there? I used the word crop. 
in a show about plants. Anyway, uh, the telescope is now on the home stretch of its commissioning work. The new photos show neighbouring galaxies in a sharper focus than we've ever seen before. The telescope really is going to change the way we view the universe, which to me makes it worth every penny of the $10 billion cost. Now, I've used the word mind-blowing a few times in this episode but this is really mind-blowing, and I think we're just so lucky to be alive at a point when there's so much incredible stuff happening in the world of space flight and space exploration. Absolutely. It seems like everything is just kind of happening at once, which is incredible. We yeah. did mention earlier that there was a launch in New Zealand in the past Talking two weeks. Talking of mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah, this is awesome. Uh, this was performed by Rocket Lab and their Electron rocket, which put 34 satellites into orbit on May 2nd. But what made this launch special was that the first stage booster was caught by a helicopter as it was parachuting down for a splashdown. Yeah, it's always been the company's plan to reuse their first stage booster. But rather than the upright landings that we see SpaceX and Blue Origin employ, this is the method of Rocket Lab. Unfortunately, the pilot of the helicopter had to let the booster go before getting home because of an issue with how it was flying. But it did splash down safely in the water and has been collected. But this whole thing just proves it can be done. And I'm re really intrigued to see what happens here next and how this continues to develop. Emily, did you see the video? It's absolutely crazy. Yeah, it's nuts. Yeah, they literally pluck it out of the air. It's crazy. We marvel about rockets landing on their legs, but this is also very impressive. Yeah. Uh, there's a part of me that's worried because I remember when the SpaceX landings and the vertical landings were brand new. And I'm like, I hope I never get bored of that. Like, I hope I never take oh, yeah. that for granted. Like, yeah, what, another vertical landing. Like, that's a, that is just huge. So, yeah. Yep. And talking of Blue Origin, they have announced the six-person crew for their next suborbital launch of their new Shepard rocket. The NS-21 mission currently doesn't have a launch date, but the crew is a diverse group and includes the first Mexican-born astronaut and the first Kryptonaut. I have no idea what that means. Uh, I think it you must mean they use cryptocurrency, but I'm very out of the loop on that one. Anyone? Also, how is it that this is the first ever Mexican-born national? How is that a thing? How can that finally only just be happening now? Yeah, how is that possible? Why hasn't happened like why hasn't happened by this point? Also, she hasn't paid for a seat, which is pretty cool. She's been given it by Space for Humanity, which is uh, a non-for-profit. That's pretty cool. I like that. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that that they, you know, they they kind of given away some seats, which is which is awesome. Give me a yeah. seat, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> Give us a damn seat. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, I'm not really kidding. But <laughs> and finally, while we're talking about things which Dave doesn't understand, yeah. uh, Samantha Christopher Reddy has posted the first TikTok video from space. It's not clear whether she uploaded it or whether this happened back on Earth, which would be a little cheeky. But it was content made. <laughs> For TikTok in space, it's 88 seconds long, and Dave will post a link in the show notes as well as links to all the other news stories we've discussed today. Hey, who's been tracking up my lunar surface? Okay, just walk around for one second. <laughs> so, as promised, our little catch-up. Emily, we normally do this at the front, but obviously that news story was very important. I'm glad we covered that as we did. But how are you? And how was your first week working for Celestius? How was the Space Hipster trip to Oklahoma? How was the May 4th fundraising trivia night? Care to sum all of that up in a very short space of time for me? Oh my gosh, that's a lot. Uh, 
Okay, my first week at Celestis was amazing. Uh, I actually have my first launch coming up in a few weeks. Amazing. Uh, so I will be around uh, the Cape Canaveral Space Force Station covering it. I, I don't know if, I don't think I'll be on the station, but I'll be around it. I, I haven't seen a launch as an as a aerospace professional in a while, so I'm very excited about that. Uh, that should be really cool, and I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing that with the team and stuff like that. It's scheduled for May 25th. As we know, launches can get pushed back, but let's hope that doesn't happen. But it's the May 25th SpaceX Transporter 5 rideshare launch. It's basically a launch where various providers are putting up like CubeSats and NanoSats and stuff like that. It's going to be really exciting, though. And some bits of dead people, too. Great. Yes, and cremains <laughs> and DNA. Yes. I love it. Yeah, we have our flight capsules that attached to one of the payloads on that flight. That's so cool. So it's actually really cool. The hipster trip to Oklahoma was incredible. Uh, I, I, I got to write about it. Uh, we went to the Stafford Air and Space Museum. We also went to um, Science Museum Oklahoma and the Oklahoma History Center, and I got to see a Skylab command module for the first time, which was awesome. I saw Crazy. Skylab 4, so it was amazing. Uh, the May 4th uh, trivia night was also pretty incredible. We got to, uh, we had a few uh, VIPs join. And unfortunately, you lost your Jar Jar Binks uh, trophy to uh, Larry Puzio. Well, it's only because I wasn't there. But don't worry, Larry, I'm coming back for him next year. But it was very successful. I, I want to say, I forgot what the actual number is, but I want to say our efforts It's thousands, raised, isn't it? It's thousands. Like over 14 grand for them. Like something insane. And that's enough to send all the kids to space camp i think for a year or so so good you know if uh you haven't donated to taking up space if this is your first time hearing about taking up space uh if you're going to donate to any uh non-profit i highly recommend them they're helping kids do great things for the future and they're sending native american girls to space camp and really inspiring them to to keep the dream alive so please consider donating and I did write a couple articles. I wrote a Skylab reentry article whoa, about. Whoa, 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 whoa! I just need to jump in here if that's all right. Yeah, go right ahead. So you've been really busy. Yeah, you've been really busy, but you still found time to write a whole article about Skylab, right? Yeah, Emily, I'm not going to lie. I'm a little bit disappointed with some of our listeners. Not a single person has contacted me to say well done to you, and I'm surprised. Our last episode was all about space stations. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't a single mention of Skylab. Oh, wow. I was good then. I was behaving last time. I can't believe you got through it. I think I mentioned Gerard K. O'Neill, or I was trying to mention Gerard K. O'Neill. So I almost got, so I got, I almost messed up. But no, I did not mention <laughs> Skylab. I'm very proud of myself. Very proud. Yeah, well done. But obviously now. As a result of the fact that you internalized all that Skylab stuff, you end up having to get it out of your system and write an article about it. Am I right? Am I right? Anyway, tell us about this article. Yeah, I wrote a, a Skylab article, and it's basically a. It's a. I I did a two parter. The first part is about the Skylab reentry, and the second part is about the Australian response. So the Skylab reentry, and there was actually a guy in Australia who tried to start a conspiracy theory about the reentry and it, it's kind of amusing to read about this story it has everything it has miss universe it has um <laughs> donny osmond shows up and it has what the, the hell? 
I know it has a conspiracy theory. It's got a lot in it. And then um, I wrote another article on my Medium blog, which is about there's a new documentary on Netflix about the Three Mile Island accident. And that was a nuclear reactor in uh, Pennsylvania that uh, melted down, basically. Wow. And most of the contamination, thankfully, was was inside the containment vessel because in the United States, the way we keep our reactors is everything is protected inside like a, a pretty robust containment. So thankfully most of that was contained in there, but it was still the worst commercial nuclear accident in the United States. And it scared the heck understandably uh, uh, out of a ton of Americans, which I can totally understand. Basically the article is about how the technological sort of mistrust around that time affected how people viewed the Skylab reentry because mm. You know, people were like, okay, well, you know, they kind of lied to us about this reactor melting, you know, the the NRC, which is a the Nuclear Regulatory Commit Commission, which is a, you know, a government operation. Well, is NASA lying to us about the space station? So, yeah, it sort of explores the year of 1979 and sort of the zeitgeist of what a lot of Americans were thinking. Well, I need to catch up on these articles. Obviously... I've been a little bit busy, Emily. Yes. Uh, it was a crazy, crazy week for me. I will read your articles, I promise. But let me tell you all about the gala events that happened in London last week. Tell me all about it. Well, we had three days of events in London. And this just doesn't happen here, which is amazing that it did. And massive shout out to Christina Corp. And a big thank you for to you and all the team for putting this on and the Space for a Better World team. Because... It was just incredible. So on the Monday at the Science Museum, there was a panel which was open to the public, completely free. All you have to do is book a ticket, not have to pay anything. Come along and watch six astronauts and legendary engineer Poppy Northcutt uh, talk about their life as life in space and it was their way of trying to inspire the, the next generation as well talk about their experiences and answer questions and it was just one of those really wholesome events uh, that I, you know, I took my mum and dad to, I believe they had a good time, uh, to my girlfriend. It was amazing. And there was some, loads of kids there hopefully being inspired. Although at one point, uh, the host did ask one of the kids if having heard the answer to their question, they want to go to space. And the kid just went, nope, <laughs> which was quite amusing. Anyway, day two was this big gala, uh, which obviously was very expensive. But Christina asked me to come and take photos, which I, I did. And as a result, I got into places that I wouldn't have got to to be had it had I've just been That's a paying awesome. guest. So this was pretty cool. And there I am uh, in the green room and all the astronauts there, the whole Inspiration4 crew, which obviously last year was such a big deal, and uh, getting to have, say, say hi to them. Obviously, Charlie, Duke, and, and, and Dottie, his wife of so many years, was there uh, amongst other astronauts. Obviously, two of our guests, Nicole Stott and Suzanne Kirain, amazing to, to see them again uh, and have a catch up with them um, and it was just wonderful I got to talk to Tim Peake which I've never done before which was really cool really cool so this whole event and there was some awards given out to uh, Poppy and Charlie and the Inspiration4 crew it was a really nice night everyone looked very glamorous <laughs> and then on the Wednesday I got to play the after party I was a musician well, I am a musician and I got to play my songs uh, a little acoustic set and a couple of space based songs as well uh, and that was really cool and I had uh, Dr. Simon Proctor and Nicole Stop both come up and talk to me more about my music afterwards which was just really cool you know you're on stage and you're looking out and you see Poppy Northcutt standing there listening to you sing and you're like 
this is cool. This is something I never awesome. expected to happen. So yeah, I had a great three days, a really great three days. And thanks again to Christina for making it happen. Uh, and anyone else who's involved, incredible. London of all places. That's amazing. And I'm really glad you got to, you got to see that and experience that. That is so freaking cool. I'm, Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Especially in this country, these things just don't happen here. So obviously we get a few events, but it's not, having this many people over at once for a big event just doesn't happen here. There used to be a, an event called Autographica, I think, in the UK, but I, I don't think it's happened for a number of years. And I mean, I, it was kind of like the Space Fest for th- that side of the pond, and I, but I don't think it's happened for a while. I have no idea why. Yeah. I know there's a company called Space Lectures that's done some events, but they haven't done any just because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, I got to meet those guys for the first time in real life last week. So that was pretty cool. We're friends on Facebook, but now yeah, we've met in real life. They're awesome. They're yeah. wonderful. They do grid events. Yep. But as I say, it's just normally with one astronaut at a time. So a little bit different. Anyway, while we're talking about events, I want to try and squeeze this in quickly. We received an email letting us know about this fantastic event that's going on in Los Angeles at the Griffith Observatory, which is one of my favorite places. If you've ever been there, it's amazing. So I'm going to read this out because I think it's worth letting people mm-hmm. know about it if they're there. The first signature production to be created exclusively for the Samuel Ochin Planetarium at Griffith Observatory in more than a decade. Signs of Life is an award-winning astronomical detective story that propels visitors to uncover what it took to put life in the universe. Produced by a team of the world-renowned artists, including the film's director, producer, writer and Oscar and Emmy winner Bob Nyimak, scientists and astronomers. Signs of Life immerses audiences in the environments and conditions that put life in the universe. Earth is the launch pad to Mars, the moons of Jupiter and Saturn and planets beyond our Milky Way galaxy in the search for answers to the mysteries that captivate our imagination. I just think that sounds amazing. The trailer looks amazing. Check it out. Definitely think it's worth having a look at if you're in Los Angeles. And if you're ever going to Los Angeles, make sure you go to the Griffith Observatory if you've not been there anyway. That is really cool. Awesome. Yep. So anyway, I think we should wrap this up. We've had a lot to squeeze in this episode. It's fair to say that this has been a mind-blowing episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, We'll be back next week with more Space and Things. Until next time, don't forget, in space, no one can hear you mean. Space and Things has been brought to you by... And Things Productions.